For those of you tuning into uh, the podcast, welcome to the Genus Brewing Podcast. This is something that we do every Sunday and try to publish that up on our website. Uh, We generally start out with a format of um, some beer news as well as Genus news, uh, followed by a beer of the week. And then we go into some discussion topics and finish that up to open questioning. So welcome and enjoy. Seltzers are a thing, obviously. especially during the sort of quarantine type situation we're in. Um, I think that's only pushing them even harder because while they might not sell as well in a tap room, um, when you're going to the store and you're pulling something off the shelf for a hot summer day, um, hard seltzers are a pretty easy choice for most people. And the uh, entire U.S. is actually going into a health craze. A lot of people are thinking about doing things a little bit more outside and active. You're seeing beer companies like Athletic Beer Company hit it pretty big. That is a non-alcoholic beer company, which from what I've heard is pretty good. So if you guys are interested in us trying some of that beer, let me know because I think that would be pretty exciting. Let us know. Um, Locale beers are becoming a thing. Locale beers. And uh, speaking of health beers, (laughs) electrolyte beers are also a thing, which is hilarious. So this is the next thing I found. Um, an article about craft uh, house brewing um, coming out with a beer that uh, they're calling electrolyte IPA, and I'm going to straight up call them out on this because so this is the quote of uh, of from them is so it has quote electrolytes of sodium, potassium, chloride, and bicarbonate <laughs> to ensure you keep on keeping on unquote. So. Uh, <laughs> what, I, what I'd be really curious to find out is actually the, like the, the amount that's in these because for those of you who don't know what electrolytes are, the electrolytes are the things that make your brain communicate with the rest of your body pretty much. Um, they uh, go in between your actons and dendrites and serve as what carries electrical signals through voltaic potential. But uh, that's going to be your salt, standard sodium chloride. Yeah. Your potassium is going to be a big one. Uh, of course, bicarbonate and calcium like was mentioned. But in electrolyte drinks... Those are there at a very high com- very high concentration, yeah. like very way high. higher than like Goza level amounts of salt, which is why a lot of electrolyte drinks actually taste pretty salty if you don't have the flavor and the sugar to back those up. Yeah, and and that's and I'm gonna kind of call them out because all those exist in water. Yeah, uh, they're they're so in every beer for pretty much high concentration. Yeah, every beer has some some concentration, especially um, I don't even think bicarbonate is considered an electrolyte. That but no, it is. That's literally just hardness. Bicarbonate is a, is an electrolyte. It actually <laughs> works with uh, so it creates alkalinity at certain ends of your uh, what, what are they den- dendrites. So basically, <laughs> it's used through proton pumps to make it so that there's a negative spot somewhere and a positive spot somewhere else, which is what shoots the electrical yeah. signal. Either way, it's very silly. It's something that exists already in every single beer. Um, and while I get their whole marketing thing. Um, it's the I, same thing as the low-cal IPA that came out after the Brute IPA, and that's, that's yeah, what it is. Yeah, it's, it's very... Um, oh, I missed it. Dang it. Good job. Further win. I was going to transfer that. I was trying to pull... You know, I was, I was solving the world's problems here. Yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a very empty statement, in my opinion. It's where, where I bet yeah, you more, I, more likely than not, there's not elevated levels of any of those other than typical Not to the point where it would really do too much do, to you, yeah. yeah. I mean, a, a good amount, like in a Goza, that, that does play a role. Like, you'll get less dehydrated drinking Gozas all day than you will from drinking beer without that level of salt, for sure, because it helps your body absorb water. But, you know, they say in the article, they say that the, the, the tough part is finding the balance of a light or a low-cal beer with the flavor of an IPA. And in my mind, the flavor of making an electrolyte beer would be just be finding out like where you can push that level of electrolytes too because i highly doubt it's to anything that's super reasonable yep <laughs> so as for some more local news um washington state is i guess doing a sort of rollback of 
openings. I don't know what you want to call it, but yeah, they're basically kicking everybody outside, <laughs> which is very confusing on our part, but it sounds like um, starting this fall, coming up Friday, um, everyone will have to be seated outdoors now if they want to go out to places. Um, so luckily for us, we have um, a fairly Some large patio here. Outdoor seating. Our outdoor seating yeah. is better than our indoor seating, but still not, not a lot of people want to be outside during a certain time. So that's going to be Yeah, tough. so it's going to be a really, really weird situation um, to be in. But that's, you know, we're, we're doing what we can here. Um, it sucks for a lot of other places, though, because uh, we know a lot of breweries in town that actually don't have patios or have very, very small patios to the point where they're... Uh, Shack! That doesn't have a bag in it. Okay. Um, <laughs> small patios to where um, they've actually kind of um, been thinking about, you know, is it even worthwhile to stay open at this point? Um, but I think they can still do to-go stuff. So um, it's just going to be kind of another uh, another cut in the uh, old back there. So Yeah. And, uh, yeah. Uh, Somebody said welcome to California. <laughs> Washington is also being a super, super family-oriented place uh, by saying you can literally only sit with people that are a member of your same household. Yeah. Whatever so, that means. So we're totally going to check that. <laughs> yeah. Everybody wear a shirt that says you're from the same household. Yeah. Just wear matching <laughs> shirts with everyone. Yeah. That's, that's the only like, thing I can so think of. Like, yep. I'm with these guys. Uh, all right. And uh, so that's and, it. On. I think there's one more thing. So you got oh, an yeah. Omega Yeast. Oh, comment your favorite Omega Yeast. Yeah. By the way, just do that. Um, so, all right. Well, I think that pretty much covers up our news for the week. So let's uh, go right into our beer of the week. Beer of the week. Totally did not make this one up this morning. I'm actually excited for this one. This one's going to be uh, it's a, it's a really fun style. I'm glad, I'm glad you, you thought of that one. That was a good. Yeah. Um, anyway, what he's talking about is. Last minute totally works. Um, 21B, I believe. Uh, that's, BJCP. That's a specialty IPA category, which includes a lot of different IPAs. But yeah. uh, this particular one that we're going to focus on is the white IPA. Um, so I like to call a white IPA um, the bastard child of what happened when um, somebody kicked a keg of wit beer. Um, and had a half pint of beer sitting there and said, screw it, let's top it off with, uh, with a good old American IPA. Um, because really you are blending these um, two categories together to get something like a white IPA. Yeah, so you've got some of the haze from a hazy IPA, but in none of the same ways that you want hazy IPA haze to come across. Uh, the haze in a white IPA is going to be rocky and fluffy, and it's going to fill out of the same boxes that you get from a nice highly carbonated white IPA because they're meant to push across uh, like citrus and phenolic spice. Yeah, exactly. And so the, the big note to, um, to hit on, so with this style of beer, is that you're getting some character from whatever Belgian yeast strain you're using. Sometimes that might be some fruity banana esters. Um, sometimes that might be some lighter peppery, some slight, slight amount, and I say that um, very specifically, slight amount of clove um, quality to them. Um, but um, because they are bittered pretty heavily, um, uh, sta standard say 40 to 70 IBU, which is definitely up there, um, and for a fairly pale beer other than um, some adjunct um, flaked malts in there, um, you actually have a, a nice dry crispy beer in the finish. So um, that's really I think what separates uh, them from especially like a New World Hazies is the yeast and the fact that that finish is still going to be um, dry and crispy instead of being kind of thick and chewy. Um, so yeah, let's just get right into it. Um, the aroma, like I said, um, going to be um, fruity, 
going to be um, slightly spicy, can have some, uh, some degree of phenol notes in there, um, but uh, otherwise moderate. Um, and then the flavor itself can vary quite a bit, actually. Um, the flavor is going to be, um, a lot of times it's going to be a little bit bready, and it's going to um, have some fruity esters. Uh, a lot of times you'll get some orange notes from them. Sometimes this can actually be from orange peel. Um, a lot of times this can come from the hop varieties themselves that you choose. Um, and they'll, usually they'll have a slightly bitter um, dry finish to them. Yeah. Um, and then the mouthfeel um, is going to full body um, generally be, well, full-ish. Um, full, but then because... Not that, sweet, yeah. So yeah, they can so finish kind of dry, sweet. but they're going to have that same, uh, that same puffiness and, like yeah. I said, that kind well, of actually, rockiness that you get from... light body, so... Oh. Um, yeah, so, so the body's not, not as full as you would expect, I guess. Um, I just think of full and, like, the puffiness. Like, the, if you go... Yeah. It, like, puffs up in your mouth. Um, and then... Um, high great, carbonation, like any wheat beer is going to have. So yep. that high carbonation puts forward a lot of the phenolics that you get from yeast, which is what you're looking for. And then some, uh, some examples out there uh, are going to be, um, the, the one that always comes to my mind is Chain Breaker um, from uh, yep. Deschutes Brewing and I believe... New Belgium makes an accumulation white IPA. Yep, a New Belgian accumulation. That's the it? ones that we've seen in the store. But of, of course, we're in the Northwest, which yeah, means we've got Blue different, Point, uh, Harpoon, different offerings. That's, that one I don't even know. So yeah. I'm sure that's an East Coast thing. Um, but yeah, so that's kind of the quick breakdown. So let's go into our ingredients that we chose. Um, so our malt of the week is going to be, I almost said wheat, malt is going of to the be wheat. flaked wheat. Flaked wheat <laughs> is a really fun one. It's got that, uh, um, that same kind of puffiness that you get off of malted wheat. It's got a lot of the same like flat, bready flavors without being overly assertively grainy like rye can. Uh, and then flaked wheat will also have just a touch of kind of toasted quality from the gelatinization process. Not as much as like a torrefied wheat, but you get a little bit of that puffed maltiness. Yeah, so um, you got to realize that these grain bills are going to be very, very simple. Um, you're going to have probably just a light Pilsner malt or some kind of really light pale malt um, that you're working with, um, and then this flaked wheat, and that's pretty much it. Um, you're really not, um, crystal malts have no place in these beers. You're going for a really light color to them. Um, the color is supposed to be, oh, wait for it, um, 6 to 14 SRM. So, so that can actually go fairly to yeah. the, to yeah, the light amber color. Yeah, I a little bit dark. Um, <clears throat> 6 is going to be that kind of like hay-y kind of quality. It's not as like crystal clear as a Cerveza or light Pilsner, but you're going to be in that same blonde to cream ale range yeah. on the lighter end and then all the way to like a, a fair amber, yeah. although my personal style would never get it that dark. Mm -hmm. um, and, um, Science. So, yeah, so you're going to use um, a pretty high amount of flaked wheat in there. You're probably going to be using um, anywhere from maybe two to even up to about four pounds. Um, these can have pretty high original gravities on them, up to 1070, um, which also I think is actually where you're getting uh, some of those higher colors from. Um, so, oh, wait, am I looking at the right one? Hang on one sec. What are you looking for? I just looked at the rye. Oh, there it is, white. Never mind. Hang on. Hold the phone. Oh, five to eight. I was looking at rye. No wonder that seems so dark. Yeah, I was going to say. Backpedal for the color SRM. It is supposed to be five, five to, to eight. eight. Uh, yeah, okay. That I makes like, a lot more sense Yeah, to I was me. like, that makes a lot more sense. I was like, that I was, seems I was dark. reading comments while you were doing that, so I wasn't, I wasn't going to fact check you on the time. <laughs> yeah, so five okay, to eight. With that's, OG's yeah. up to 1065, which also seems a little better. I'm like, wow, 1070 seems high. Um, <laughs> but uh, one note is that the final gravities are between 1010 and 1016, um, which is also kind of a, a byproduct of using the, that higher amount of um, adjunct or flaked malts in there. Um, you're going to end up with a higher finishing gravity. 
Yeah. Um, and that's also where you're going to kind of get that. 1016, I feel like, would have a little bit of, like, puffiness. Yeah, exactly. Um, yeah, so like I said, two to, say, four pounds for a five-gallon batch, um, kind of depending on your grain bill. Um, but, yeah, keep it simple for the grains. Um, throw in some flaked malts, throw in some flaked wheat, um, and uh, call it good for that. And let's go into our hop of the week. We wanted to kind of accentuate the fact that you can get a little bit of orange quality with this week's hop. We went with Idaho 7, which can have some tangerine and marmalade flavors. Yeah, Idaho 7. Uh, we actually just did a video on this, but, uh, yeah. It's a really um, fun hop. Got a little bit of that tangerineness, got some herbalness. I think that that, uh, that herbal sort of mid-tone to it will actually balance just really well with any kind of um, phenolic yeast that you're going to throw at it. And, uh, yeah, so um, Idaho 7 would be the hop of choice. It is a fairly high alpha hop, too. Um, so And it's got a good amount of cobite, so it's a really good balancing hop if you're yep. going to use it for, like, that West Coast style where you're hopping multiple times during the boil. Uh, but it also has tremendous and uh, round tropical flavors that come when you do whirlpool it. So you can really kind of go on both ends to push forward the bright citrusy pop that you want from the orange component while having some complexity from tropical fruit that kind of make this beer more interesting. Yeah, and I wouldn't be afraid to uh, throw a healthy amount um, somewhere in that range for a five-gallon batch of even up to about a half pound of this. Eight ounces is um, my good. Go to for big flavorful IPAs. Yep. Um, I would hop it in the sort of style of a West Coast um, where you've got your traditional bittering addition. You know, you're getting that 40 to 70 IBUs um, and then probably something like a 15 five-ish flame out somewhere in there and then a dry hop so yeah. and to be um, a squid less on the whirlpool than you would get from like a juicy where you're throwing you know four to six ounces in the whirlpool this whirlpool can probably get about just two maybe three ounces you don't want to over juicify this because you want to uh, lean the beer's flavor into that spiciness that you'll get from the yeast and from any adjuncts that you're going to use exactly so let's go on to oh. I just pushed the wrong thing. Our, uh, speaking of which, our yeast of the week, yeah. which um, is uh, actually a blend that uh, we kind of thought about today. Yeah. Um, let us know, by the way, next week we're thinking about doing uh, talking all about blending yeast and uh, different ways to do that. But uh, as for this, um, we did, um, went for a blend of Whiteout, which is your traditional whip beer strain, strain, and then Joystick, which is the Pac-Man strain from Rogue. So that's your classic West Coast um, just super, super neutral, super clean um, ale strain. And uh, I believe, in my mind, the combination of those, um, what's, what's going to happen is, for one, the beer is going to ferment like a beast. Mm -hmm. It'll probably be done in three days. Um, but uh, also you're, what you're going to do is you're going to take those, those really, really heavy clove, really heavy phenol characteristics of the um, whiteout and actually mellow those out a little bit so they don't overpower the beer. And you're um, going to lean those into a little bit of uh, like kind of black and white pepper flavors instead of just that heavy clove and risking banana flavor that can happen if you have a whiteout strain by itself, especially if that strain starts to get a little sluggish. And so that joystick is yep. going to help the whole beer rip through and you'll get that kiss of nice spiciness off the whippier strain without it distracting from all the flavors that you want to keep from the hops. Yeah, I, I would avoid like um, some of the vine Stefan strain, um, like the vine Stefan wheat strain for, yeah. for a beer like this. I or feel even like, like a blended wit strain. Yeah, I feel like the bananas might get a little bit too overwhelming in the beer. Um, I do think another alternative would be like the Ardennes strain, um, 3522 from Yeast could actually work pretty well. Yeah. Um, but uh, I think the bottom line is that um, throwing higher cell counts at this um, and then throwing a more neutral strain to sort of balance out whatever Belgian strain um, you want to throw at this will actually um, get you that sort of hint of character without ending up with a beer that's like, whew, that's Belgian-y. Um, and more or less pushing the beer into instead of a white IPA until just the straight Belgian IPA category. So, 
Um, that is, I believe, the trick to finding balance and really. Really. And let's go on to the adjunct of the week, which is something that uh, uh, we decided to add whenever it's appropriate. So the adjunct of the week for this is a really fun one that we've seen added in a couple of nice, really flavorful beers that are being brewed in Spokane. Uh, and that's peppercorns, mixed peppercorns to be specific. Yeah, so peppercorns come in a huge variety of um, different, actually, colors and flavors. I know I've, I've used black, I've used green, I've used white. Pink, um, pink. pink is really common around here. Yeah. Um, yeah. Um, and that color as well. Yep, all um, of the colors. <laughs> We're writing each other secret messages uh, on our... Uh, yes. Uh, so, yeah, as for other adjuncts, um, we got peppercorns. Um, and then, yeah, like, like I kind of mentioned earlier, don't be afraid to throw um, some kind of zest or some orange peel, be it sweet, be it bitter. Um, you know, have fun with it. The world's your oyster there. I feel like you can't really go wrong as long as you're not, like, getting excessive. Yeah, you can um, go ahead and add a lot of bright flavors. Just don't add a lot of sweet flavors, first of all, and don't go overboard on anything that's going to be too yeah. distracting. But feel um, free to play around with some nice bright flavors. Yeah, finally, for water chemistry, um, you're going to want to go for a, a fairly balanced water profile on this, if not leaning a little bit um, more towards that West Coast uh, higher sulfate um, situation. Um, I would say to pay attention to your mash pH, um, depending on how light and how simple your grain beer, beer, beer grain bill is, is going to be. Um, you may have to add either some acidulated malt or a little bit of lactic acid to your mash. Um, and again, all depends on your water. But, uh, but uh, yeah, so shoot for that overall balance profile, leaning a little bit more towards a higher sulfate to chloride ratio. Yeah. So. All right, so that pretty much covers our beer of the week. Before we go on to topic number one, let's address something that's been kind of an ongoing thread. Uh, Thor Odinson uh, asked something about getting a slightly tart flavor, it looks like, um, from adding apricots to a beer. This is where it's way up there. But uh, he used a combination of fresh fruits and syrup, and it's got okay. a weird taste. Um, someone asked, uh, he mentioned he did pasteurize at 160. My question would be, did you freeze first? And my theory would be uh, with that fresh apricot flavor, if it's got a little bit of extra like tart sourness that you can't really explain, it could actually be from skins or cell walls that haven't completely broken down. Freezing and then pasteurizing will turn it into a nice sweet mush that actually um, makes it easier to get that apricot flavor in your beer. So I'm guessing it's not a sanitary issue because it sounds like it was yeah. pasteurized. Uh, 160, I think the pasteurization temperature or time is somewhere around 10 minutes. So um, if you go up to 180, that shortens down to like less than a minute. But uh, my, my guess would be it has something to do with the cell walls or the skins giving you a little extra bite. If he had pits in the apricots, it is possible that he actually got a little bit of tannins out of there too. So yeah. that might come across as that weird flavor as well. Um, which a little bit of tannin isn't isn't a bad thing, but too much can definitely uh, well suck on this, and you'll find out. <laughs> That's a, that was a threat. I that think. was uh, <laughs> yep. And let's on go on note. to topic number one, which is the importance <laughs> of water in beer. Water is the largest ingredient by weight and volume that you'll add to beer. Uh, maybe not by volume, by weight for sure. The largest ingredient you'll add to beer. I have to look. What's what's more voluminous, the grain or the probably the grain. Anyways, yeah, you're getting way too into that now. Anyway, <laughs> by weight, definitely the largest ingredient that you're adding to beer. <laughs> and in the final product, for sure, the most important ingredient that's yes. in there. Water has different flavors, and those flavors do affect both how your mash goes, how your fermentation goes, and the base flavor of your beer. Uh, yeah, and yet it is almost <clears throat> always overlooked by, you know, for definitely for starting home brewers. And honestly, for a lot of well-seasoned home brewers, they overlook water. They start worrying about, um, you know getting this hop and that hop and the alpha acids and, you know, 
yeast starters, but they keep forgetting about water chemistry. Um, so we are just going to go head on and address that elephant in the room today and sort of give you guys a simple breakdown of um, you know general water and uh, what it all means and how to how to work with it right yeah so we've got a couple of main minerals that we're working with when it comes to water chemistry uh, the first is kind of the uh, um, the first one that you think about when it comes to mash pH and that is a measure of the residual alkalinity uh, or total hardness and that's going to be the bicarbonate or chalk that's in your water yeah so um, chalk or bicarbonate um, you'll also kind of see this as a hardness um, is another thing that you'll you'll see um, and and what this is is um, this is going to give you flavor wise in low quantities um, it doesn't really do much for flavor but in high quantities it can actually give you that um, whenever somebody says a beer tastes minerally um, that's going to be part of it um, is having that chalk in there and this varies widely depending on where you're at um, I was just looking up one for Seattle, I guess, has actually super soft water, yeah. um, which was like 10 ppm of bicarbonate. Meanwhile, where I live, which is just outside of town here, um, we have almost 300 ppm of bicarbonate. Um, so, yeah, I get toilet rings in like five days out there. And there's even a variation um, in like because we, we moved two miles away and we're on a different well in this current location from our old location. And our old location was around 120 parts per million bicarbonate. And we haven't tested this water, but just by taking the pH, I noticed a huge difference. So I'm guessing we're closer to that, you know, between 10 and 30 uh, ppm of bicarbonate yeah. here. Either that or there's some something that happens in line that softens our water because our water here comes around 7 pH. Yeah, it's, over there it's definitely it softer. Yeah, we're I think we're higher than that, but I, I did definitely think we're well under 100 here compared to I think we're probably 100 or not higher over there. Yeah, I, I had it measured out there. It was 120. Yeah, I was like, that sounds about right. Um, but uh, so this is also a double edged sword, though. So the beauty of having um, bicarbonate, which is uh, uh, usually calcium carbonate or calcium bicarbonate, um, and uh, is that when it's dissolved in water, a lot of times you can break away those calcium ions, mm -hmm. um, which mean that you can get great mash conversions, which is at my house. Mash conversions are amazing. Um, but again, uh, then you're left with that overall just intense minerality, which can be very beneficial to um, dark beers, um, but be very detrimental to anything that has a lot of hops in it um, and anything that is a generally pale colored beer. So. They can add an actual minerally taste, which sometimes is really good if it's done in the right proportions, but if it's in too light of a beer, that minerally taste can turn a otherwise crisp and refreshing beer into a little bit of more of an aggressive, like... Yeah. Tongue scraping beer. Yep, exactly. It's a tongue scraper. Yeah. <laughs> um, so speaking of which, let's talk about dissolved calcium because uh, that's a really important one um, <clears throat> specifically for our mashes. Yeah. Uh, so calcium has a plays a couple of roles. One is actually in helping your enzymes do their job in the mash. Uh, it also reduces the residual alkalinity. So where bicarbonate is going to add raw alkalinity, calcium under the uh, uh, when it gets acidic can actually dissolve some bicarbonate and that reduces the residual or not uh, dissolve but combine with bicarbonate and reduce the residual alkalinity or the ability of your mash to buffer against pH and so when you add gypsum for example or calcium chloride you're making it so that the acids in your mash can change the mash pH more calcium sulfate is what he meant to say gypsum I said gypsum yeah you said calcium chloride I said both of them yeah. both of them have calcium in them oh well yeah I'm talking about the calcium specifically. You didn't say or in between. I said gypsum or calcium chloride. Did I say that, guys? <laughs> Let me know. I'm totally right. Logan's wrong. 
<laughs> Anyways, either of them have calcium, and when dissolved calcium is in your mash, it first of all helps your enzymes, and second, reduces your residual alkalinity, meaning your mash pH can change more with acid additions. Exactly. Um, so very important, especially if you're dealing with very soft water, um, like, like we mentioned, the Seattle water. Um, so if you have soft water where you don't have high amounts of uh, dissolved calcium, you actually um, need to add some degree of that um, in order to get some good conversion in your mash. Otherwise, what happens is those enzymes need it in order to um, convert their starches into sugars, and if they don't have it, they just have a really hard time going through that process. Yeah, it's also going to be important for yeast health in your final beer, although there will be some levels of calcium and magnesium that you get from the grain themselves. Magnesium is much higher, and when it gets into the final beer, uh, a ratio of five calcium to one uh, magnesium parts uh, is usually pretty good for overall yeast health, making sure that they aren't um, either multiplying or fermenting at different rates. Yep. A general rule of thumb to shoot for for dissolved calcium is about 70 ppm. That will max out uh, all of your um, mashing abilities. Um, so that is a good thing to kind of keep in mind. Um, for a balanced profile. So, yeah, for a balanced profile. Um, otherwise, let's go into sulfates and, and chlorides, right? Because these are, these, we've talked about these before, but they're arguably the most important um, thing when it comes to any kind of water chemistry. They definitely have a huge, huge effect on um, literally brewing the same recipe and just swapping these two um, can uh, can impact the flavor a lot. So yep. So let's start with the uh, sulfates and the going with a higher sulfate ratio. Sulfate does uh, the thing that you're pro probably most used to hearing now is that sulfate's going to add aggression and push forward your hop flavors uh, a little bit more. And so that can be the sulfate being crazy high relative to the chlorides, like ten to one. Uh, although I usually try to stick in the five to one ratio uh, unless my yeah. beer is stupidly minerally, in which case I like to try to keep it balanced somewhat. Uh, but I've seen sulfate as high as you know. 300, 350 parts per million, uh, in, in which case I like to do, I do like to have my chlorides kind of up at maybe 50 to just kind of make sure it's not some ridiculous stretch. Yeah, exactly. Um, and I, I'm kind of on the same line of, of anything above, yeah, when you start getting between three and five, I think that ratio gets high enough that you really are pushing for those hop sharp notes in a beer and anything beyond that you're kind of just wasting water salts yeah so um unless you really are trying to hit um you know a target um, profile so so yeah the sulfates uh the thing you need to know sulfates push forward hops whereas chloride actually puts push pushes forward malt or uh, sweetness or body and so uh, a chloride ratio uh, about even with sulfates gives you a nice balanced profile and then when you get into things like uh, uh, a lot of lagers with a little bit more mouthfeel or of course new england's are the biggest yep. uh, culprit right now that new england or hazy ipa you'll be pushing those chlorides forward a little bit more yeah so chlorides are going to soften up the hop profile they're going to push through some of that uh, that mouthfeel some of that um, malty sweetness um, and it's really and it's it's not the total amount of these but it's rather the ratio between the two um, so if you have a beer that's got, um, you know, 40 ppm of, of chlorides and 5 ppm of, of sulfates in there, then it's going to be very soft. Um, whereas if you've got a beer that's 50 ppm of chlorides and, like Peter said, 300 ppm of sulfates, it's actually going to be um, uh, Relatively quite sharp. Relatively Yes. So um, difference between styles, West Coast, um, you know, if you want that sharpness, a lot of uh, British beer styles. Uh, you know, your stouts are also going to be um, have a little bit higher, higher ratios, things like that, things like English bitters. And uh, and then for the soft beers, you got your your new hazies. 
Um, and then you've also got a lot of your traditional loggers. Yeah, a lot of those loggers that like to push forward the malt feel. So like Hellas lager is going to be more yeah. on this, uh, sul- uh, sorry, chlorides, whereas like a Pilsen lager, that's going to be slightly pushing on the sulfates, but it's going to be a relatively soft overall beer, not very many minerals. Yep. Something that goes with chlorides, uh, kind of along the same vein of building body and mouthfeel, and also perceived sweetness, and it's an underutilized mineral. It's a mineral not a lot of people think about, uh, but it is sodium. Sodium chloride is obviously the most common way to get sodium or chloride in your beer um but and it's very very common in like german styles for them to have relatively high you know 50 60 80 parts per million of sodium but i see a lot of people when they're building up profiles here in america they use calcium chloride all the time and so yep. their calcium Completely gets really high their chloride gets really high and then sodium's like zero because our sodium in our water is nil yep yeah so sodium actually has this little uh this small effect on mouthfeel and it and if you've ever had, you know, true German, German beers, really, in general, I would say they have this roundness to them. Um, and I like to contribute that to the sodium in the water. Um, and it doesn't take much. A little bit goes a long ways. Yeah. Um, but uh, having that there can actually give you a sort of roundness that you just miss out on, um, regardless of what you're doing with it. Um, we do not sell it here, though. Um, and that's because you already have it. Yeah, you can get it's, it any, anywhere. You don't want to use iodized. Salt. Um, yeah, well, you, non-iodized salt. So, <laughs> yeah, sea salt, table salt, pink Himalayan salt. Anything that's non-iodized is going to work for you to get that sodium in there. Uh, and another way to think about it is you think about the same reason that you put sodium on food. I mean, sodium is a flavor enhancer. So yep. the, what it does is it re, uh, reduces the energy of activation that your taste buds require to perceive certain compounds. Uh, and it makes it so that it uh, you taste things a little bit more uh, more aggressively for things that are already there yeah uh, for the same reason and relatively light beers a little bit of sodium can go a long way where you're trying to like really search for all those flavors in the beer um, that tiny bit of extra sodium is going to help you perceive those more strongly and pick out the delicate nuances of the beers um, also while building that mouthfeel and overall flavor exactly so um yeah and then lastly one i kind of threw on here which typically um, it is important, but uh, but you're not really going to have to deal with it a whole lot. But that's going to be magnesium. Um, so magnesium is found in Epsom salt. Um, so that's just another water chemistry kind of tool at your disposal. Um, typically, you'll see this in pretty low quantities. Um, but uh, what most people don't realize is you actually get a lot of this from grains themselves. Yes, uh, magnesium is very common in grains. Uh, it's a uh, basically, the biggest reason that you need magnesium in beer is going to be your yeast health, uh, but it's not something that I worry about too much. And so that five to one ratio is what you want in uh, your final beer. But if your calcium in your, your if your calcium in your uh, uh, water is already relatively low, then it's not really something you have to worry about terribly. So I wouldn't yeah. think too much about trying to put you know Epsom salt, for example, in your mash, unless you have zero magnesium and your calcium's up at like that 120 parts per million, something super, super high, then it becomes an issue. Yeah, so what I generally tell people is uh, not to worry a whole lot about magnesium if you're using city water. Most city water um, will have enough magnesium to get you where you need to be. Um, But if you are building up a water profile from scratch, um, it's definitely a good idea to get a little bit in there. So um, if you're using, you know, distilled water or or RO water and actually building up a profile exactly, um, you'll see in in most water profiles too, it's going to vary a lot, but almost all of them have at least a little bit of magnesium in there as well. So let's talk about one more uh, trace mineral that uh, not a lot of people think about whether or not it is in their water uh, and that it is really important for yeast health. And that is zinc. Um, Zinc is a, vitamin that some waters have and some waters don't. Uh, I don't think about too much 
when I'm building up a water profile, obviously, but one thing that I do always do is add yeast nutrient to my wort, um, just to make sure that my yeast have that going into the final beer. So if you add yeast nutrient that has zinc in it, then you don't have to worry about uh, whether or not it's in your water. But just one more quick tidbit. Sounds good. Oh, sorry. Hitting the mic. Um, and then uh, next kind of let's talk a little bit about um, the pH of your water because, uh, like I mentioned in our beer of the week, um, that can, you know, have be an issue if you are brewing really light or really dark beers um, and depending on if you've got really soft or really hard water to work with. Yep. Um, you're talking about pH of water. The first one you have is pH of the beer. Are you talking about pH of water or beer? Well, it affects the beer too. Um, final, so, yeah, final pH will affect the beer. We can, let's start with mash efficiency because that's the first part that pH will come in to play. Yeah. Um, so pH uh, affects the enzymes that work in your beer. There are several different enzymes that are at work that come naturally from the grains to make sure that you get proper conversion and the right sugars out of your grains. Uh, and kind of that optimum temperature pH range is 5.2 to 5.4. However, there are some protein-based enzymes that work really well at a lower temperature. So, uh, for example, uh, proteus uh, enzymes, a lot of those will work really well at like 4.6 all the way up to 5.1. So a little bit under that 5.2 is the end of the world but i don't like to go too much under that 5.1 because a lot of alpha and beta amylase start slowing down under that ph and so if you have that kind of 5.1 to 5.3 ph range you're in a really good spot no matter what you're mashing if you're mashing with a protein mash uh, protein rest you might consider going a little bit under but again you don't want to go too much under where you're not letting your alpha and beta amylase do their work yeah so most people will have um, fairly high ph water which means that um, if you're brewing a very light beer, um, you're gonna have to add some kind of acid addition to adjust for that. It means that the, the grains themselves aren't gonna have enough buffering impact. Um, they're not gonna have enough natural acidity to keep up, which means that you might suffer from losses in, in your mash efficiency. It means that you're not gonna get a full conversion rate. Luckily, that's pretty easy. Um, that can be done with uh, lactic acid, um, or acidulated malt is, is by far the easiest way. Um, investing in a half decent pH meter is honestly, it's they're reasonable now. What are they like, thirty bucks to get a? Half you can get a pretty solid one for thirty bucks. Yeah, for half decent pH meter, um, it's not a bad idea. Um, for dark beers, the the darker the malt, the more acidic that malt is naturally. Um, so they're actually going to have a lot more um, impact on on if you're using a water that say has a you know seven point eight pH to begin with. Um, or something like that, as, as well as a lot of reserve alkalinity, um, which is kind of its own thing, but we'll omit that for this conversation. Yeah. Um, but uh, yeah, so dark beers a lot of times will have um, that natural impact of having of lowering the pH of your mash. So if you happen to be at home, um, you're brewing light beers, you seem to not have nearly as good of efficiency compared to your dark beers, um, that's probably a water pH problem. Yeah. Um, so definitely kind of dive into that, maybe invest in a pH meter. Or on the opposite end, when you do dark beers, if you get less efficiency, uh, that could be yeah. your water's already pretty You have softer acidic. water, yeah. yeah, and you're actually you're, the dark beers you're too acidic on the, on the mash. Yeah. Um, which, in that case, um, you'll actually want to add... Um, more bicarbonate of, of your bicarbonate. Yeah, I was going to say you want to you want to buffer that with adding more bicarbonate to your water, which makes sense. If you got soft water, it can use a little bit extra bicarbonate anyway. So, um, speaking of adding bicarbonate to your water to alkalinize it, let's talk about uh, let's talk about uh, how your strike water can impact mineral. The pH of your strike water can increase uh, impact mineral solubility. 
because uh, one thing that you might notice if you have like really hard water or alkaline water is when you go to boil up your strike water, uh, all of a sudden you see some precipitate in the bottom of your strike water kettle or your hot liquor tank. Yeah, that's actually <clears throat> going to be your bicarbonate falling out of solution. Um, and yeah, pre-acidifying that can actually really reduce that. Uh, like I said, out of my house, 300 ppm, that's way too high um, for most beers. Um, my quick and dirty solution is just to dilute it with store-bought water. Yeah. Um, but if you, you know, don't have that option or if you're just trying to get things done real quick, um, you can actually pre-acidify your water, boil it up, let it cool off just a little bit, um, and a lot of that um, bicarbonate will fall out. Um, what I've read is it generally drops down to right around 100 ppm. Um, when you do that, it's called uh, slaking, I think, is the technical term for that. Sure. Um, but yeah, and, th and that's also, whenever you see a traditional recipe that mentions decarbonated water, yeah. that's exactly what they're talking about, um, is you're pre-boiling the water, um, you're getting those bicarbonates to drop out, and you're getting it down closer to about 100 ppm. Um, so that is definitely a trick to be used um, when you're trying to brew a lighter, softer beer. Yeah. Um, um, all right, so pH, let's talk about how pH affects your, uh, the softness or sharpness of your, uh, your hop flavors. So in general, basically, the, the lower the pH, uh, which we can get this just by, again, a little bit of acidulated malt in our yeah. mash, the more you're doing to lower your pH, that can actually help boost um, the, the flavor profile, the sharpness of your hops, or the uh, kind of citrusy tones of your hops. Uh, and we do this pretty commonly um, yeah, with a little bit of acid malt. Yeah, it has a huge, <clears throat> huge effect, actually. Um, yeah, to where you can take a sort of almost piney West Coast profile hop um, and turn it into, you know, what, what I like to call the pineapple bombs, right? Um, yep. And that's just by um, making a beer, um, adding a little bit more acid malt, usually later to your boil, um, and dropping that pH by, um, you know, only maybe like, you know, dropping it down from, say, what, you know, final pH of around four eight to like four four somewhere in there oh not even that much those are, yeah those are kind of arbitrary numbers but uh it wouldn't be that big of a difference in the final product but um but yeah by dropping that down you can really change the way a hop comes across and that's just because you're starting to get those thresholds of acidity um and and so now all of a sudden a hop that might have been piney comes across as very citrusy because citrus fruits naturally have acid associated with them the way um, the especially with the lactic acid the way that your your mouth perceives lactic acid directly versus the way that your mouth perceives hops when the hops are impacted by lactic acid those thresholds are different so you don't necessarily have to add enough lactic acid to get your beer tart to have it impact your hop yep. profile yeah the opposite uh, thing can actually happen when we dry hop a beer, too. When you dry hop a beer, um, hops themselves are naturally um, alkaline, so they end up actually raising the pH a little bit, mm -hmm. um, and that can actually push through more bitterness, which is another interesting thing. Yep. Um, so if you ever have a beer that you're tasting when it's young, um, it's kind of pre-dry hop, and you're saying, uh, it's a little bit sweet, you know, a little bit too much body. I wish that was a little bit more assertive on the bitterness. Um, maybe try upping your dry hop addition a little bit just to raise that pH a little more for you. Um, and I think you'll be pleasantly surprised at how much more bitter that beer actually tastes after dry hopping. Yeah. So. Um, um, anything else for the pHs? Um, yeah. So, and then the only other thing for oh, pH, yeah. um, which is going to be sort of a it's not necessarily a starting water thing so much as a final water um, thing and something that we've actually kind of played around with here um, is different yeast strains if you're doing a sour beer 
um, that you're purposely souring your mash, you're, you're purposely putting you know, lactobacillus in there to sour that, um, is that if the pH does drop too low, a lot of yeast strains um, actually can't handle it. Um, and it'll actually um, make cause a, either a stuck fermentation or it'll significantly slow down their fermentation. Um, and that's why the general rule of thumb that you'll see whenever pe people are doing sour beers um, are stick with um, German ale strains. Um, kind of variety of those, you know, even even coal strain, I think, is, is actually um, yeast temperature pretty pretty yeah. uh, pretty pH tolerant. But That's yeah. the word I'm looking for. <laughs> I'm trying to temperature yeast tolerant uh, uh, yeah. words. <laughs> so yeah, but uh, typically a German ale strain. Um, those ones are naturally um, acid tolerant. Um, so those are your best choices for doing, especially heavy sours. Um, so yeah, and I think that uh, kind of sums up all of our water chemistry. Um, so let's go on to topic number two, which we have uh, so lovely labeled ascorbic acid and other acids, too. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I don't know if we have a ton of time to go over a ton of different acids, uh, just because... We'll give you the quick, quick rundown on them. The quick rundown. All the acids that we'll add in beer, and then we'll go into off-flavor acids, which are off-flavors that you might not know about, what we titled this whole thing. Yeah. Um, so ascorbic acid, as you guys have heard before, we use what? in... Every one of our beers, it is a uh, it is a natural antioxidant. It is known as vitamin C in the real world, and uh, it is something that can be a good preservative, especially when you're making hazy or New England IPAs. Mm. To give you a rundown, what we do in all our five gallon batches of beer, that's all our 19 liter batches of beer, is we add between three and five grams and we put them into our mash. Now, a lot of people will tell you that ascorbic acid will degrade when it's uh, sub when it's in higher temperatures. Uh, but uh, the thing that we find it helps with is it reduces reactive oxidants species early on and those are the species that are precursors to oxidation happening so by reducing reactive reactive oxidant species it makes a more stable beer in the final product um, and so that's why we added into our mash it seems to work there's very little science to back that up but we've done side by sides and it works yeah. the correct way that pro brewers do it is they add it at packaging but there's a lot of mixed science about whether or not it actually works when adding it packaging so when people are asking about it we say technically add three to five grams when you package or during fermentation but what we do is we add it in our mash Yep. So, um, yeah, and you actually did find an article on that too. So, Several articles. Yeah. So, um, an article about how it affects um, different impact in the mash versus at packaging is ultimately what it comes down to. We have been adding it to our mash. Um, I think it just it stabilizes the beer. Um, it it keeps the hops fresher for longer. Mm. Um, and just really, I think, like Peter said, it's it's keeping those uh, those natural things that are that are going to try to oxidize within the beer after packaging. Um, it takes them out in the mash step, um, so they'd never have a chance to actually get in the package. And before you look up the very first uh, article on what vitamin C is or what ascorbic acid is, it's really important that you know that there are actually two types. Um, so the most, most common one is basically one that's binded to uh, sugar, and that is a very stable version of ascorbic acid. And then there's the, the standard ascorbic acid, which is the, uh, basically the dissolvable uh, and water ascorbic acid. And that one is the one that will degrade at higher temperatures. And so if you took your packet of ascorbic acid and you microwave it's going to not turn into ascorbic acid, but if you add it to your mash, it has more longevity. Yep. Next, let's talk about lactic acid. This is probably what you've heard of when you uh, work out and it gets in your muscles, but uh, also it has some fantastic uses in beer. Um, the e easiest and simplest use is for pH adjustments. Um, adding a few drops to your mash is usually all you need if you got a highly concentrated 
um, version of lactic acid, um, and that will help adjust mash pH, but also uh, you can use it as a quick and dirty souring method. Yeah, so lactic acid is the most common byproduct of lactobacillus, or the same stuff that makes your yogurt yogurt, uh, and it has a relative sweetness when used in a concentration where you can taste it, but obviously being an acid, it's also very tart. Uh, it also has a relatively high flavor threshold, meaning you can add a decent amount of it before you can actually taste it. Yeah. So uh, next, let's talk about phosphoric acid. Um, phosphoric acid is, a, is quite a bit less common, um, but we use it. I mean, we primarily actually use it for cleaning stuff more, more than anything else, but phosphoric is a very strong acid. It's a strong acid, again, um, with a high flavor threshold, meaning you can use a decent amount of it before tasting it, which is why it's good for pH adjustment. Yeah. Uh, both lactic and phosphoric acids are relatively strong acids, which is why we use them for pH adjustment. Um, uh, but phosphoric acid definitely doesn't taste very good when you have it in a flavor threshold uh, yeah. level. Uh, I think the best use for phosphoric acid, especially when it comes to like water chemistry type stuff, would be um, when you're in that situation, if you have really high water, you want to drop that pH in the water from the get-go. Um, and because of its potency, I think phosphoric acid is a good choice for that. Yep. Uh, it's also before you, people, someone... Uh, uh, we got into an argument with me a while ago when we were talking about using star sand and don't fear the foam or something like that. And they're like linked all these articles like phosphoric acid decreases bone density. Any acid will do that at a high enough concentration. Luckily, it's never going to be at that con concentration in beer. So it is acetic, but you know. Yeah, well, literally any acid does it. <laughs> uh, all then, right. And let's go on to citric acid. Um, this is kind of a fun one. Um, can be good and bad. So citric acid is a uh, weaker acid, meaning to get to any sort of pH adjustment with citric acid, you will pass the flavor threshold. Uh, that said, the flavor threshold of citric acid doesn't necessarily mean it's going to be bad unless it's too yeah. aggressive. Yeah, I think citric acid can be fantastic um, if you are doing a, a, what we like to call instant sours here. Um, where you're actually adding it to a finished beer to turn the beer into a sour beer. Um, I think a combination of both lactic and citric acid give you more complexity than just having um, the lactic acid in general. Um, so citric acid is fun. Um, like Peter said, it does actually have a flavor associated with it. Um, I think you can all guess what that flavor is going to be. Um, sort of that uh, lemon-lime is kind of like what I, I like to describe it as. And uh, so adding that with some lactic acid gives you more complexity in a sour beer. Um, you can play around with it, too. Um, we've actually made some sort of some beer cocktails. Some, are they bocktails? Is that what, what you call them? Sure. Um, beer cocktails with citric acid as well. Um, and it can also help kind of cut through sweetness if you end up with a beer that's going to be really sweet and you want to sort of um, turn that into a sour for yourselves. Yeah, let's talk about acetic acid next. Acetic acid is vinegar. It's common, uh, commonly made by Acetobacter in mixed culture beers, but it can also just be a byproduct of leaving your beer open and getting a, fer uh, uh, a, f a fermentation that you don't expect, an infection. Um, acetic acid or Acetobacter, the bacteria that makes acetic acid, is very, very common in nature. If you were to smash up some cabbage, for example, it would turn into vinegar because aceto uh, Acetobacter is already there. Um, but yeah, it's uh, very, very aggressive and it tastes funky, but it can also taste very good if used in the right proportions. Yeah, acetic acid is something that you should never be adding to beer, um, but it is something that uh, you can find in beer. I think the great examples are Flanders Red and Eau Bruin style sours. Um, so if you ever have a sour that's just lazy on your butt, odds are it's full of acetic acid. I like to say that it hits you way, way in the back. Um, is where the acetic acid will hit you, whereas the lactic's a little bit forward in your, in your mouth. And uh, so, yeah, so that is another acid. Um, and then also um, something that you 
shouldn't run into in beer, but might if it's barrel aged, um, is going to be malic acid. Malic acid is very common in apples and pears, uh, but it, it can also be a very aggressive uh, acid. So in apples and pears, malic acid gives you that kind of tart bite that you get. Um, things that have it in higher concentrations are obviously going to be like Granny Smith. Combination of malic acid and tannic makes Granny Smith yeah. great for pies, but not so optimal for eating all the time. Um, and yeah, it's just kind of an aggressive. It's the acid on the outside of warheads, if that is a good explanation. Yep. So... Uh but yeah, these are all fun to play with. I think they all have their place. Um, like the later ones, more so if you're playing around with different sour type beers. Um, I think a combination of more than one of those will actually end up leading to a better beer. Otherwise, uh, most of them should be out of beer unless you are just doing um, water adjustments um, for your pH. Um, so those are the um, common acids uh, that you're going to find in beer and uh, going to use in beer. So should we go on to the, yes, the, uh, we should. Okay. Uh, so let's talk about um, some other acids that uh, you definitely, hang on. Yeah. I, yeah. Def definitely do not want in beer. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I'm like making sure that there's not anything that's good in there. Yeah. Um, no. Yeah. The next ones are off flavored acids. These are acids that are always considered an off flavor in beer. Uh, they, they do not taste great. Um, and somebody already asked what is one of the most common, uh, reasons for that homebrew flavor. One of these I would definitely put on the list, but let's talk about the first one, which you can get a lot, uh, more commonly when you're doing sours, um, because you, there's a period during sours where you have kind of a more open environment before you add your yeast. Um, and your yeast need to be competitive to keep out infectious bacteria like clostridium I'm sure some of you are already knowing exactly where we're going with this and that is butyric <laughs> acid butyric acid is baby puke acid it's it's it not just like, baby it's puke in general yeah it's well <laughs> it's more pungent in baby you can smell it everyone has that uh, they, they understand where it comes from uh, it most commonly comes from an infection of a clostridium if you do not pre-acidify your uh, um your mash or words to under four point under four point four is probably good, but four point two is kind of that yeah. that hard line where it can't get in there. Um, uh, but it can also be caused by some lactobacillus strains. However, that is uh, less common. Yeah, so clostridium is going to be <clears throat> by far the most common. Um, you're probably wondering, well, where does that come from? It comes from the grains. It is all over your grains. Yep. Um, so yeah, especially if you're trying to inoculate with some grains, um, that's why we definitely shoot on that high temp range as well it tends to knock that out and favor the lactobacillus when you're, you know, trying to sour a beer at, you know, 110 to 120 degrees versus down at say 90. That's when you start kind of getting into that danger zone um, where, where you definitely risk the chance of clostridium getting into that. Yeah. So uh, when making uh, sour, oh, this can also come in regular beers. If it comes in regular beers, it definitely is a clostridium or lactobacillus infection, but just with poor pHs. So if you have it in regular beers, um, that, that you just you so clean brew house practices can make it so that you never have it in regular beers but it's much less common in those than it is in sours yeah uh and then we can also talk about isovaleric acid sounds like we're uh, from uh game of thrones here yeah yeah valerian steel here comes isovaleric Okay, sure. Yeah, everyone gets where you're going with that. Isovaleric acid is uh, common from uh, Brett infections. Um, that's probably the most easy way to get it if you don't have a high, highly hopped beer. Uh, but it is, it is also common in uh, it is in oxidized hops. And so if you have like old hops that start to smell cheesy, yep. isovaleric can be that. And then what that is, isovaleric, is it's kind of like a cheesy, uh, like f rancid foot smell. Yeah, it's that classic like weird old beer flavor. Um, and it's, and it's kind of par for the course. It, it comes hand in hand with, uh, I think, yeah, just old oxidized beer as well. 
it kind of makes sense, I guess, with if your hops are oxidizing and you got old, yeah. old IPA that's oxidized, um, you might get that weird cheesy grassiness associated with it. Yep. Um, and then last, let's talk about caprylic acid. Caprylic acid is actually one that I think is more common for that homebrew kind of flavor. If you have caprylic acid in your beer, um, it's kind of got an oily or goat y kind of flavor. So just a little bit like weird, but maybe you can't fully explain why. Uh, and the best way to avoid uh, it is just have a healthy fermentation. Yeah, exactly. It's a yeast stress um, or just not very healthy yeast in general. Um, that's generally when, when that acid is going to be produced. So um, again, you know, it's like, practice what you preach starters big pitches yeah that's that's the way to go always and the other side to homebrew flavors the other because somebody asked homebrew flavors i would say is uh kind of goes along the same way of get a healthy fermentation is just uh unintentional sweetness yeah that's not from caprylic acid but unintentional sweetness can go away uh if you have a healthy fermentation because first of all all the sugars will be fermented out of your beer uh, and then the other thing is sometimes when yeast are under stress if you don't have a really healthy pitch then those yeasts that are under stress can produce some esters that kind of give you a perceived sweetness that isn't fantastic all right well let's open her up to some general questioning real fast here um we went a little bit longer today but uh send in your questions and we will answer them for you um uh, what's the best hop to use for a crushable smash IPA? Lots of them. Oh my God. Uh, um, Azaka. We just mentioned that one in the most recent live stream. Mandarin Sabro, Bavaria. Idaho seven. All the ones we just met. Mandarin Bavaria ones. Bavaria takes a little bit more technique to be as good because yeah. it's light. Do do an IPK like we did. It's been selling really well. It is a really good beer. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Kolsch yeast, simple grain bill. All, all hops in the whirlpool. And then, yeah, whatever you want to throw in there. Amazon is evil. We've got someone saying that. Super cool. Amazon. I People mean, are against 5.2 pH stabilizer. I am too. If you have the ability to keep it out of your beer by just doing standard water chemistry. I think we kind of, same thing. <laughs> it's, it's easy enough that if you're, if you're worried enough about water chemistry that, that you're worrying about pH, um, you, it's probably easier just to figure out what your water chem is and, and do a, a few drops of lactic acid in yeah. there. And mash, like the mash pH is not the most important part of water chemistry. That's yeah. where 5.2 kind of gets off. Like a lot, I know a lot of people use it for the right mash pH, but you're, yep. you're, you're changing so many other flavors. Definitely. Um. Someone asks, if you use two yeasts for the beer, do you co-pitch or pitch the clean finishing yeast a day or two later? Depends on what I'm going for. So with the Ooh, yeah, example today, one. I would actually probably make two starters and pitch them simultaneously. Yep. Um, for other strains, like if I'm doing a co-pitch with Brett or something that I really want to accentuate funky flavors that not necessarily yep. would be made if, uh, in a co-pitch, um, then I might pitch them a day or two later. Yeah. It also kind of depends on if the yeast is competitive. Yeah, I always do it with saisons myself. I will always do a Belgian saison, <laughs> which is notorious for stalling out, um, and let that ferment for, like Peter said, three or four days, and then actually pinch a French saison yeast after that, just to ensure that that finishes out while still getting those awesome bubblegummy flavors from the Belgian yeast. Um, all right, and I just saw another question on here about uh, racking beer onto a yeast cake, yay or nay? Definitely yay. Um, do consider, um, you know, you want to have like beer going on to like beer for one, and you want to make sure that's a nice fresh yeast cake. You know, you probably don't want to be racking your, uh, your American pale ale onto a yeast cake from an imperial stout you know, for obvious reasons. But uh, for the most part, you're going to have tons and tons of healthy yeast. So I've done that with great results in the past. 
Someone's asking what gravity should I expect in a second beer from 30 pounds in a five gallon batch? Entirely depends on what you're going for with your first runnings beer. Uh, this question is talking about a party guile. So a five gallon batch, 30 pounds is very, very high. Uh, oh, if yeah. you're going for, you're probably going for a like one quart of water per pound of grain ratio. You want a thick mash for sure with that. And what I would say is you just take the runnings from that, trying to do some quick calculations, just the runnings. 30 pounds, 1.3, you're, you're losing about four gallons of water and you put in 30 quarts, that's seven. So you have three, if, uh, so you probably get by by 1.25 quarts of water per pound of grain in that. And then just take all the runnings from that, boil it down. And your second runnings, you're sparred on that, you're probably still gonna get 1.050. There's gonna be yeah. a, lot of, a lot of grains left on that. Uh. Or, sorry, a lot of sugars left on the grains. In a finished beer that I overshot pH, could I raise the pH back to where I want it with baking soda? Um, I wouldn't use baking soda. Uh, depends on the difference. Dry hopping will raise your pH slightly. Um, but, uh, yeah, I would probably use, like, calcium bicarbonate instead of baking soda. Yeah. It's going to dissolve really well because beer is going to be acidic post-fermentation. Yeah, a lot of those hacks aren't, aren't always the best just because they're not the not designed to be uh, dissolved a lot of times in, yeah. in the it, beer. It also depends on how much sodium you want in your beer, I guess, but yeah. I'd have to do the calculations to figure that out. Pineapple. Um, clean, sanitized hot bag or grain bag. Um, shouldn't need to sanitize um, any bags that are being boiled, um, but you know it's not a bad idea to sanitize a hot bag if you're, if you're going to be dry hopping with it. So... Um, we got a good one from Matt actually asking about a strong rubbery flavor in a beer that he fermented with 3470 under pressure. Um, he thinks it might be the hot fermentation. Um, I am thinking more along the lines of a water issue myself. Um, rubbery is kind of a, that's a weird one. Um, if it's like that sort of Band-Aid flavor though, that's probably you somehow got some chlorine in there. Um, so as I'm getting really close to the mic, sorry, everybody. Um, but yeah, I'm, I'm thinking that's probably a chlorine issue. It could be a contamination issue. Um, but, uh, yeah, rubbery is a weird one. It could also be oxidization, um, which would be another one. I know we've gotten some kind of weird, sweet, meaty rubber kind of characteristics from, uh, oxidization in the past. Yeah. I was just looking up one of the acids that causes that meaty flavor. Um, it has to do with, uh, so basically there's another byproduct of, of, both Brett and certain strains of lactobacillus that can cause that meaty off flavor. Um, depends on if it's rubbery or meaty. Uh, it could be a, um, yeah. it's, it's a different type of butyric acid. That's not the baby puke butyric acid, but it's a bound butyric acid. That's common byproduct of lactobacillus and Brett fermentation that causes kind of a meaty, sometimes sweet flavor as well. Yeah. Um, so it's hard to say uh, if it's rubbery. We usually attribute that to like <laughs> garden hose or. I was gonna say for all you that are still tuning in, dude. Notice that we don't immediately jump to it's infected, uh, because more times than not, um, from our experience, from our customers coming in and asking for you know troubleshooting advice, uh, that's very rarely the case that the beer itself is actually infected. Um, almost always, it is a sort of methodology. Um, process um, issue along the line. Yeah. So. Someone asks, can I add ascorbic acid when I bottle my homebrew? Absolutely. Yep, sure can. It's not going to hurt nothing. Um, some, somebody's asking about having issues carbonating in um, a uni vessel without a spunding valve. 
Um, I mean, the spunding battle is going to be the good way to go. I would say at least have a pressure gauge on there so you know what you're working with and then also make sure that you, uh, you have a relief valve on there. I do know that the SS uh, uni tanks are not designed to be, have a ton of pressure. Um, and so, and then obviously you won't get any carbonation if um, you don't have that tank crashed as well. So I would say, you know, make sure that you've got that, got the beer in that tank when you're trying to carbonate as cold as possible. Um, and then, uh, yeah, and then, you know, 12, 13 PSI should be about all you need. Uh, you might have to calculate the weight uh, rated PSI that you need because the rate at which your CO2 is going into your tank does take into effect the, uh, sorry, the pressure that your CO2 is going in through your carb stone or through the bottom of your tank will be rated uh, depending on the weight of the beer. So if you have a certain kind of constriction based on the uh, size of the hole in your diffusion stone, and then you have a certain weight that's on top of that, there's actually a calculation you have to do to make sure that CO2 is still going into the beer. It's a one barrel. It's like half a PSI. No. Well, you know, I don't know. Uh, one barrel, you should still be... I think it's one PSI every three feet. Um, so someone says... We have some people at, that asked early on about uh, um, acid malt. Um, so it's not... common. Uh, contrary to common belief, it's not... That just malt that's coated in lactic acid it's actually naturally fermented mm -hmm. and so what they do is they soak it in a way um, that it's, it's slightly moist on the outside of the grain and they let the naturally occurring lactic acid producing bacteria make acids on the malt and then they kind of stop that yeah. uh, through the kilning process and then you've got both uh, but they don't kill the acid back uh, the bacteria so you still have both bacteria and a multitude of acids, most commonly of which is lactic acid on the outside of the grain. So acid malt, I find, is a more complex acidity to add to uh, beer if you're just going to do a faked kettle sour. But uh, it's I got think lactic acid on it. There must be another maltster that sprays because we've we've had that question pop up a lot for us. And, well, I think and people just think it is. I don't yeah, think there's a... Yeah, we, we use Best Malls um, acidulated malt, and it is definitely not sprayed. I, there might be some other maltster that, that sprays it, but... Um, yeah, because I've had that question so many times, and it's like, no, that's not how that works. So um, definitely a good question, though. So glad to get that. At What's the biggest off-flavor myth we feel like we've busted? Uh, I think that's that's got to be secondary, using a secondary. Yeah. Wait, off-flavor myth? Yeah, so, like, do you have to transfer to a secondary? Oh, yeah. I mean, that's not necessarily an off-flavor, though. Well, for um, uh, um, what's the polyphenols? Chlorine. Polyphenols from secondary. No, polyphenols. The uh, yeah. uh, um, yeast skins, whatever you call those. My brain is yeast, my brain is flaking. Yeast skins. What have you, you? You know what I'm saying? Like uh, autolysis. That's the one. Oh, autolysis. Yeast exploding. Uh, yeah. Don't let your your yeast cake sit for months on end and all the yeasties die. Um, but you can. But you don't have to do a secondary. Yeah, no need for a secondary. You you missed the point of the question. Okay. What's the biggest off-flavor myth we feel like we've busted? Oh. Oh, I gotcha. Off-flavor myth. I don't... I'm trying to think. I don't know. Don't know. I don't think either of our brains are working right now. I think autolysis, the, autolysis from secondary for your standard batch of beer is definitely the one. People, if you are going from primary... If you're sitting in primary for probably even two months or, or less there's really not a risk unless there's like high acidity a lot of temperature swings or unless you have a large fermentation vessel like barrels yeah all right um i think yeah. that's about it for questions somebody's saying they need beer smith training 
and uh, yeah, all right. Well, let's wrap this guy up for today. And uh, thank you all for tuning in. We will see you next week at 8.45 Pacific Standard Time. Um, and uh, thanks again for tuning in the podcast. Give us a like. I see there's only 34 likes. Um, thank you guys so much. We will check back with you next week.